Uh, it's good to see you all. Um, one of the pastors here, Noel Prez, and we are continuing a series by looking at a portion or a section of uh, the life of Abraham. And we've entitled this series The Call of Abraham because part of our ministry theme for this year is really following the Spirit of God that is leading us to be called to Christ and then being pushed out and being called to serve one another. And in one way, when we look at the life of Abraham, who's sort of the forefather of the faith, we see a real-life flesh-and-blood example of what being called to Christ and called to serve looks like. And so today, our passage will come from the entire chapter, Genesis 13. And it's a fairly lengthy passage, but we're going to read the entire chapter, verses 1 to 18. So if you're able, I want to ask you to please stand for the reading of his word, Genesis 13, verses 1 to 18. It's actually a fairly well-known passage that's common and popular in children's ministry books, and I'll share why that tends to be. But starting with verse 1, this is how the call of Abraham continues along in this narrative and story. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had and lot with him, into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed, from the, journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with him, with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together for their possessions, were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in this direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose... For himself, all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I'll give to you and to your offspring forever." I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that no one, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also be counted, can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. And this is God's word. You can take your seats. Realize as you get older, the words of the Bible seem to get a little bit smaller, <laughs> difficult to read. Uh, it's kind of a sad experience. But we're continuing along this series called a, basically the living God in the life of Abraham, or the call to Abraham. And I mentioned before the reading that it's a very popular passage among children's books because one of the ways that teachers tend to explain the passage and to teach their children is basically saying, Look at Abraham and his nephew Lot and see how they had to divide the land. And Abraham, being the godlier person, 
he let the younger one choose first. And then you end up with sort of this moralistic message that says, you know, this is how we ought to share with one another, and you should let the other person choose first. I don't think it's actually wrong in itself, and it could be a legitimate application, but it's not really the core of the message when we look at this division in the family. You know, it's understandable, even teachers, or if you're a parent, you know, you're driving along some way, somewhere, and the kids in the backseat start fighting and arguing, throwing punches or yelling, and as a parent, you get so fed up with it, so what do you say? What do you say to the, your children in the back or the students in your classroom? Stop fighting, or I'm going to have to separate you two. And essentially, that's the, the summary and the encapsulation of this passage in Genesis 13. There's fighting and bickering between Abraham and Lot, as well as their herdsmen, because they can't find enough land to graze. In other words, the house was too small. And if you live with your in-laws or live with an extended family, you know sometimes it feels a little bit crowded. But the deeper story of the separation of the family is something similar to what Jonathan showed us in the presiding, is that there's basically a contrast to two ways of life. You could go the way of Lot, or you could go the way of Abraham. One way, and I'm going to try to show you this, is that you could go the way of living life by sight, or go by the way of living life by faith. And that's what I want to basically just look and discuss with you here today. We could dialogue about this, because if you're honest, all of us are sort of really mixed between Lot and Abraham. We live by sight, but we know we should live by faith. But we want to move from one to the other, because that's essentially what the call of Abraham is trying to teach us in this great covenant promises that God gives to his people. So let's look at this together. Three things very simply. One, we're going to look at Lot and the way he lives by sight. Secondly, we're going to look at Abraham as he lives by faith. And then we're going to conclude and look at really the promises of God that are given to everyone who lives by faith. So we're going to look at Lot, then Abraham, and then God's promises at the end of the passage. So let's look at Lot. He lives by sight. Well, the author, who I think is Moses, who wrote this chapter, you know, he's very intentional in sort of the details that he writes in these verses, alluding to the fact that there's going to be family division. So if you look at verse 1, he already gives us a hint that there's going to be a problem. Because it says, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now he's just listing all the possessions and a narrative of how Abraham is going back into the promised land. He says, well, he's going to have his wife Sarah. Secondly, he'll have his possessions. And then in the last place, sort of a throwaway, he says also his nephew Lot is with him. Because of the placement of Lot as the third in the list, some scholars say that's lit literally hinting to us that there is a division or an altercation or something of a tension within the family. And when you read this story, they go into the promised land. Both are really rich, so rich that they can't stay on the same land because back then, you know, your wealth is not really in dollars and cents or crypto. It's really in agriculture and land and possession of your livestock. They have gold and silver, but it's essentially going to be their animals. They're so rich that they can't stay on the same real estate. Verse 6 even says, so that the land cannot support both of them dwelling together. I mean, this is actually a nice problem to have. Imagine, you know, you're, you have so much wealth. You know, we've got to find a different house. We have so much stuff, and we're so wealthy, and our purchasing power has grown exponentially. Hey, we've got to figure out a way to live together. It's actually a nice problem to have. So what did they decide to do? Well, they decide to split the land, 
and Lot chooses the Jordan Valley. It says it right there in verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, in the lake, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. And he puts this sort of parenthetical note, doesn't he? This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's another hint to say, you live by sight like Lot, it's going to go down a difficult path. We already know the end of the story. So Moses, he's writing it to say, this isn't really what you want to do. This is the direction of living by sight that sometimes leads you in the wrong path of life. It's a subtle warning, friends. You know, certainly we live by sight physically, but this is a spiritual sense. Don't just live by your eyes, your lusts, your cravings, your desperation. That's essentially what it's trying to say here. For example, Genesis has many examples of this, of someone seeing something and then acting upon what they see. It's not always really a good thing. So, for example, in Genesis 3, 6, Eve saw that the fruit was really good. The tree brought delight to her eyes, is what the passage says, and that she ate the fruit and disobeyed God. In Genesis 6, 2, the sons of God took the daughters of men because they saw how attractive they were, and then they acted upon it, and it created chaos in humanity. Well, maybe in a better way, Genesis 6, 5, God saw how evil the world was, but then he destroyed it with a flood. You have to just think about yourself, and I get it. There's something good when you look at the world through your eyes, whether it's money or power or lust or love. And sometimes when you live your life simply by your eyes, it kind of leads you down a path of destruction. You know, the old saying goes, the old adage in our culture may be kind of true. When you look and live through your eyes, it looks too good to be true. And oftentimes it is too good to be true. So in Lot, when he looks at the land, he doesn't just see real estate. Lot, I think there's a really spiritual significant sense in which the verse says when he looks at the Jordan Valley, he saw paradise. It says it's like the garden of the Lord, which is the garden of Eden. That's paradise. That's bliss. That's perfection. And you could say on one hand, well, he's just a good guy saying, oh, I remember Genesis. He remembers his Bible stories. But because Moses seems to be writing Lot's life and choices in a negative light. Remember, he puts that parenthetical note. He chose the Jordan Valley. This is before God destroyed the people in the evil city there. I think it's a negative sense. I think it's more of a subtle rebuke. He lift, lifts up his eyes. He looks out. Which land do you choose? The Jordan Valley, because it was like paradise. See, when Lot looks up, he doesn't look at real estate. He doesn't just see a way to kind of make family be peaceful by having more space. When Lot looks up and says, I see the paradise of the Garden of Eden, I think he sees wealth. I think he sees his bank account. I think he sees produce and riches. He sees paradise. Lot's saying, I look up, I choose the Jordan Valley. If there's water, if there's green, plush land, I see wealth. I see prosperity. I see future inherited wealth. I see a potential of a big bank account. I see a lot of success because it was irrigated. It was tons of green, tons of grass, and he sees potential profit. And if you know the story of Lot, then later on you see that he lives next to one of the evil cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and then eventually he lives in the evil city, and then he escapes by the skin you know, of his neck, and he just leads down a path of people who live by sight. Here's the application, friends. Do you live by sight or do you live by faith? 
Now, let me get a little bit more direct. When you lift up your eyes metaphorically into this world, what's your paradise? What's your garden of the Lord? Now, for Lot, he saw wealth, he saw a bank account, he saw money, he saw produce, he saw a lavish, lush, lush green life, and he says his heart was singing, that's what I want. Now, it's not wrong to want paradise, but it's wrong to think that paradise is in this world. See, let me try to hammer this home a little bit. The essence of sin, in one level, the essence of sin is looking to the things of the world and thinking they could give you the paradise of heaven. When the world with all its thorns and thistles was really meant to prepare you for the paradise of heaven, our hearts are idolatrous, and so rather than looking and worshiping God, then we look to the things of the world and say, that will give me paradise. And you look up in this world, you lift up your eyes, you live by sight, and you ask, is this going to be paradise? It could be money, it could be love, it could be family even, it could be power. And you lift up your eyes, and that's where the passage presses you. When you lift up your eyes, what's your paradise? Let me try to dig a little bit deeper again. Desire for paradise, friends, is actually not a bad thing. You know, we're sort of wired for paradise, wired for glory. We're wired for transcendence. That's because we're made in the image of God, and if God is glorious and God is the dwelling of heaven, if we're made in his image, we naturally reflect that desire for what they say, transcendence. So we say we want, that des- we want a heavenly bliss. We want eternity. So your desire for paradise is not wrong. It's just where do you think you'll get that paradise? If it's the world, then you're going to be led astray because that's what the Bible calls sin idolatry. Because there is a paradise in the kingdom of heaven, a world in reality that will bring utter joy, that will satisfy the deepest longings of humanity, your purpose, your identity, your vision that your vision for life, all of that is encapsulated by this desire innately that you want something bigger and greater than yourselves. That's why, you know, it's, you know there's this one sociologist, Peter Berger, he wrote a book, I think it was called A Rumor of Angels. And it's a wonderful book, but he's talking about this idea called signals of transcendence, signals, meaning that everything in this world, they send signals that transcend this world to something that's glorious and heavenly. Now, that's what he's writing, Peter Berger, the sociologist, a rumor of angels. And he gives wonderful examples. He says, when children play and they enter into that world, it's almost the joy that the children experience in playing with one another is a signal of transcendence that there is a greater joy. He says, when there is humor and you're laughing, that joy of laughing is a signal to saying that we are created for something beyond this world. And if you push that, everything good in this world is sort of an echo, a song of something that points towards a greater reality, which we can say is paradise. The most beautiful works of art, the glorious pictures of architecture, the wonderful song that makes your heart sing, community and love and the stories that we read about in literature. All of these things are saying in our world and culture that there's a signal, there's a pointing towards the fact that our hearts they long for paradise. So when Lot lifts up his eyes and says, I see paradise, it's not wrong in of itself. The problem is that he thought wealth would be that paradise for him. When, in fact, the only paradise that could fully satisfy us is going to be nothing less than the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. That our heavenly desires can only be fulfilled by Jesus who died for us and gave us a new purpose, a new identity, a sense of worth and value a vision, identity, a purpose that we can live for. Now, C.S. Lewis in his 
typical winsome way in his book, Mere Christianity, talks about signals of transcendence. doesn't really use that word, but this longing for paradise. And I'm just sort of paraphrasing a little bit of what he says in that book. But he says something to the effect of this. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy you, but they were only meant to arouse the desires in you, to suggest that there's the real thing. If that's the case, he says, I must take care never to mistake these worldly pleasures for something that's heavenly because they're only a kind of copy or an echo or mirage of the heavenly reality. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which he says is heaven, which I shall not find until after death. Does that make sense? They're just meant to arouse. So he goes on and says eloquently, he says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for their desires actually exist. So a baby feels hunger, well, that means there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, that probably means there's such a thing as water. But he says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Isn't that true? If none of my earthly pleasures satisfied this innate desire for something good, for joy and contentment, a sense of purpose and identity, it probably means I was made for another world. I had a friend who was telling me about a member of his church. You know, she desperately wanted to get married. You know, that was her paradise. And she did everything for her physical appearance and her interactions with other men because she wanted to be in a relationship, she wanted to get married, and she just really wanted that. She wanted to be loved and to be valued and seen. So when she looks up, what was her paradise? It was relationships. Finally got married. And by the way, marriage is great, but it's also really tough. And in the middle of the marriage, it was difficult. They would argue, they would bicker, they eventually had irreconcilable differences, and it ended in a divorce. Utterly devastated. What did this lady do now? She transferred all her energy and her sense of purpose away from marriage and love into work. She said, I'm going to be successful, I'm going to be powerful, I'm going to go back to grad school, and that's exactly what she did, and she became successful. She increased her wealth. She had an identity as she moved up the corporate ladder. And to herself, she thought, well, I conquer the idol of love, so I'm good. But when you think about that story, she had the same desire for paradise. She thought she could find it in love, but she realized that once that destroyed and it didn't satisfy, she essentially just transferred that same desire for paradise into work. Because that's the nature of idolatry. That's like Calvin says, our hearts are like idol factories. And that's what you have to kind of ask yourself. If you're just honest and brutally clear on who you are, you lift up your eyes, what's your paradise? For this one example, she thought it was going to be in love. Then she says it's going to be in success and power over in New York City in midtown Manhattan. But it doesn't work that way. It can only be fulfilled by God from, in his son Jesus Christ. Friends, what about you? That's the question. That's the pressing desire. Where do you think you're going to find the paradise in this world? You know, when you look at Lot, it says in verse 11 that he journeyed eastward. And what's really interesting, when you read the Old Testament, anytime someone journeys east, that's usually a spiritual metaphor that they're moving away from the Lord. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, they got kicked out of the garden, they got kicked out 
east of Eden. So every time there's a subtle move eastward that's saying he's moving a little bit further away from God. Spiritually, metaphorically speaking, it's okay if one day you move over to New York and New Jersey and the East Coast. That's actually fine. But spiritually in the Bible, eastward movement is really a movement away. That's what we see in Lot because he lived by sight. I mean, he looked at this land. The soil was rich. It was good. But he didn't realize because he was looking by sight that the men who lived there were bad in Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot had chosen by sight. He hadn't chosen with spiritual interest. He didn't think about God and promises. He wasn't thinking about his uncle Abraham. He would reap the consequences later on, but his choice by sight placed him literally in the arena of savage, vicious people. And sometimes when we live life like that, you'll realize that life will implode and fracture because you don't live by faith in the promises of God, looking to your country of heaven, but you live by sight to indulge all the passions of the now and the desires of your heart and later your life will begin to become broken and fractured. Paul Chip says this as we move to second point. If the hunger for paradise is wired into your heart, and it is, either you'll realize that this present life has been designed as a preparation for the paradise to come, or you'll do your best and work your hardest to turn the present moment into the paradise it will never be. You and I live in a broken world, and right now will not be the paradise we seek. Well, if that's the case, then maybe Abraham will show us a way forward as he lives by faith. Abraham is an interesting character, especially when you contrast him a lot. He's older, he's richer, he's a senior statesman. God talks to Abraham, not to Lot. So that tells us one thing. In every sense of the word, every sense of the relationship and reality, Abraham had every right to choose which land he wanted first. Because Abraham was rich. He was very rich according to verse 2. Lot was rich, but he wasn't as rich. Lot had flocks, herds, and tents in verse 5, but Abraham was much richer. He had more stuff. So if anybody actually had the right to choose first, it would have been Abraham. But he doesn't. He lets Lot choose first. He lets Lot lift up his eyes and choose whatever land that he wants. That's verses 8 to 9. Let's read that again. It says in verse 8, Then Abraham said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. See, family matters to him. Is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I'll go to the left. Why was Abraham like this? How, how are you going to live similar to Abraham, even though he's not our model? This is why. It's so interesting, isn't it? Abraham... Think about his life in Genesis 12, left everything for missions. God said, leave your family, your culture, your home, go to this desert, the promised land of Canaan. Abraham leaves everything, a man of faith. He's building altars after altars, worshiping in enemy territory. Goes to Canaan, there's a famine, takes matters into his own hands autonomously. He goes over to Egypt, tries to sell his wife to be his sister, was willing to risk Sarah for her purity and for her health and her safety it is the greatest act of selfishness. And he had a faithless life and a faithless act in that particular story of his particular part of his story. Now he comes back, and Abraham all of a sudden seems to be a man of faith again. You know, he has every right to choose the land, but he says, For my family, for the promises of God, I'm going to let you choose first. Now, isn't that life? 
One moment, you follow the call of God. The next moment, you're in complete selfishness and brokenness. The next moment, again, you're back to faith. And that's just the honest reality of life. It's up and down. It's left and right. Well, how did Abraham get to this point? How did he go from wanting to lie and to sell his wife to letting his nephew Lot choose the land and have the greater resources? I think the answer is something really simple. I think it's worship. I think it's worship. You want to be like Abraham? Well, ultimately, you want to be like Jesus. But how do you get to be thoughtful and loving and deferential and humble and have a lot of humility and think about people before processes and wealth? How do you choose people over money? How do you get like this, to be other-centered? I think it's worship. I think it's worshiping God. Because isn't it interesting in chapter 13 that it begins and ends with worship? It begins with worship. There's a test in the middle. He's generous, and it ends with worship because I think the essence of life in the beginning and the end of life is essentially that you and I are created to worship. And then the middleness of life and the messiness of life, we reflect the true reality that God is good, he's our paradise, and the kingdom of God is our actual eternal home. There's nothing, friends, that's more central to your life than worship in the experience of living before God. Well, let me try to make my case here. You remember Abram, Abraham, he dwelt in a tent, then he left, and he's back in the promised land, and what does he do? He basically lives in a tent, and then he builds an altar, which is a worship service. Even in verse 18 again, Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. One commentator said that actually when you look at Abraham, if you had to describe what his life is like, it's simply this. This could be the motto for you and me, a tent and altar life, a tent in which we live this life, which is good, but we know it's not our home, and we have altars which we worship God. You know what that is? That's Sunday worship. Every Sunday, this is the altar in which we worship God, and they go back into the world, and as good as it is, the world is not our home. We have to live a tent and altar life. Then and only then through worship and living this tent and altar life, you actually could be like Abraham and be generous and thoughtful. A tent and altar life. Some of you are really good at making tents. You're really great at camping. I don't remember the last time I went camping. I think it was in Irvine. I heard the highway in the cars. Woke up and went to Starbucks and got a tall coffee. That was the last time I think I went when hiking, when camping. But a lot of you go to a camping, and when I hear these stories of, how's your camping trip? Honestly, it doesn't sound that fun, but people say, oh, it's great. You know, we went fishing, we enjoyed company, we hung out, the food was so good on the open fire. But everyone say, you know, it's hard at night, there's animals and bears, and when it rains, then it's just a little bit miserable because you're in your tent, and then sometimes your tent gets a little bit wet, and if you pitch your tent on a on a slant, and the water sort of comes down, and it's just like not a pleasant experience, and you can't shower. So as good as camping was, I was ready to go home. I think that's the metaphor for tent and altar life. As good as this world is, whatever your zip code is in Orange County, this world is not your home. And we're reminded that in our tent and altar repetition, this rhythm and flow that every Sunday we come to the altars and we worship God, to remind us that heaven is our home, identity is a citizenship in heaven. 
Paul Tripp uses this analogy, and he says, the problem with people like you and me is that when we go camping in this spiritual metaphor, we're not really roughing it. It's not really a tent. We have this really nice motorhome, and we bring our internet there, and we have like TVs there, and we're supposed to be camping out and building a tent, but we're living there because we think the campground is our home, and that's how you and I live life, that the world is all that it is, so we invest in everything in our houses and vacation and things that are really good, but we live as if this world is our home when in fact it's saying you got to live a tent and alter life. Now, Derek Kidner, he says this, that the fact that Abram rose to the occasion with Lot, the reason Abram was able to be so good is traceable back to verses 1 to 4 because it presents Abraham's life as a pilgrimage, a journey of repentance, you know, he left and tried to sell his wife into Pharaoh, comes back and becomes so magnanimous and generous. How did he do this? Because when you look at his trajectory, he's essentially going back the same steps, the same cities in the same order. For when he went to Canaan to Egypt, he had a certain journey in certain cities and altars. And then when he goes back, he retraces the steps. When you retrace the steps and you make a U-turn and turn back to God, that's a pilgrimage, that's a journey of repentance. From the Negev, Abram went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place where Bethel and I were. He pitched his tent. He built an altar. He settled back in, back to his altar, back to the first place he worshipped, calling upon the name of the Lord, a spiritual pilgrimage of repentance. That's the only reason that Abraham was able to give up his rights and his riches because he cared about the promises and the people of God. Did you know that when Lot chose the Jordan Valley, that's outside of Canaan? He literally chose a real estate that was not the promised land. And that means the entire Canaan and promised land was left to Abram. Isn't that how that's funny where God says to Abraham, Canaan will be the promised land. You'll own it. Your descendants will inhabit it. And providentially, how does God make this happen? Well, through these intimate details and relationships in which Lot was lustful after money and he chose the land that was outside the promised land that left the promised land altogether for Abraham to continue his promises. And that leads us to our last point. This is what the promises are. Look at verses 14 to 16. Lot's not the only one who lifts up his eyes. But it says, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I'll give to you and to your offspring forever. I'll make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring will be also counted. Man, that's the promise. It's the same thing, but he makes it real. He says, let me give you a tour. Now, God essentially becomes a realtor. He says, okay, Abraham, look around. It wasn't just one direction. He literally did a 360 view and says, all that you see, that's yours. And I said, you want family because people love children? I mean, family actually meant a lot back in that day and age in the ancient, ancient Near Eastern context. You want a big family? If anyone can count the specks of dust, that's how many children you're going to have. That's the promises, which spiritually speaking, the children are eventually you and I when we come to the church. See, let me try to, this is a very, one commentator made this sort of point about the promises of God and the children of Abraham. Did you know in Genesis that there are three stories, three sister-wise stories? You know, sister-wise meaning that there's husband and wife, and then, you know, Abram tells the wife, pretend that you're my sister. So there's three examples of that. 
The first two is Abraham and Sarah. The last one was Abraham's son, because I guess sons are not too far from their dads. Isaac does that with Rebekah. Three stories, three individual separate instances in which they're sister-wise. But did you know when it came to Abraham and Sarah that the two stories where he told Sarah to lie, after that, immediately following, was another story about Lot. I think that's because when the author Moses wrote this, he was very intentional and he structured this to make a point. Two sister-wife stories with Abraham and Sarah, following that were two stories about Lot. Do you know why? I think it's contrasting two lives. Because it could be asking the reader the question, if Abraham is going to have a son, which there will be as, not, as, as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sands of the dirt, how is he going to have a child when he's old and Sarah is actually barren? So it places you at this one position to say, am I going to live by faith to say God will give Abraham a kid? Or are you going to live by sight and say, well, he already has a kid, which is Lot. Lot was his nephew. You can assume that Lot's dad, who was Abraham's brother, died, so Abraham could have adopted Lot. Lot could have been the one that God promised if he lived by sight. I think that's why the author always challenges us. Do you hold on to the promises of God, or do you take the easy way out by looking by sight? Whose son will lead to fulfill the promises of God? Is it going to be the miraculous son of Abraham and Sarah? She's probably well over 100 years. Or is it just going to be the flesh and blood Lot? That's why the passage is always going to say, who's the son? Lot's been there for everything. Even the call of God to leave Babylon and to go to the promised land. He was there. He was with Abram. And it's asking, is Lot the son? Or is he the one that's going to inherit the promise? Is he the one that's going to be the promised seed of Genesis 3? And I think the answer is, this, is an emphatic and decided, no, he's not, because we live by faith in the promises of God and not by sight. We don't take matters into our own hand, but we lift up our hands and say, God, you're in control of our lives. See, Adam, I mean, Abraham, he prefigures Jesus Christ because Abraham, he gave up his rights and he humbled himself so that humanity can flourish. He prefigures Jesus who humbled himself because he had all the riches and the glorious possessions and all the rights in the Trinity in heaven, but he gave it all up and he took on human flesh. And he did this so that he could save you and me and make a family as numerous as the stars from eternity as far as east and west could be. And that's who's going to be the fulfillment of the promises of Genesis 13, 14, and 16. How will Abraham's descendants be as numerous as the dust? Because the seed of Jesus Christ will make a spiritual family all into eternity, you and me, that we're brothers and sisters. We have a new family, a new vision, a new identity, a new reason for being, a new purpose in life because of the promises we see here. And if you could hold on to that, friends, if you hold on to your true identity in Jesus, your value in his death and resurrection, a greater kingdom promise to say the reason that you believe you need a vision statement for your life, a mission statement for what you do in this world, is right there in Genesis 13, 14, and 16, a new heavenly home, a new country that you're working towards, a new family that you love together in community, side by side. If you could hold on to that truth and that promise, then your life will begin to fly. But if you live life ultimately by sight, pursuing love only, sex only, money, clout, power, lifting a name up for yourself, 
If you live solely and ultimately just for those aspirations, then your life will begin to crumble, probably along the lines of something like Lot. And that's the conundrum, that's the tension, that's the challenge. Are you going to be called to Christ and called to serve, or are you going to be called to the world and called to implode? That's where the passage leads us. And he's saying, hold on to the promises of God because they are sure and they are yes, and they will happen for you and me. Let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray, friends. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that you have given us just an honest picture about life. Many of us, we resonate with a lot. If we're honest and we're genuine, humble, we resonate with him. We wonder if that we were in that situation and given first choice, if we would have chosen the paradise of this world. But Lord, help us to repent and turn away from this and hold on to the promises of God. Abraham wasn't good enough. He failed and he was up and down in his spiritual walk. But thankfully, his seed of Jesus Christ was the one who was faithful and pure and perfect in all his ways. And help us to hold on to that truth for who we are as a people and as an individual to live in this world as a sojourner as an exile, to know that we're living on our way to our country, which is nothing less than the very kingdom of God. So thank you, God. We pray all this in Jesus Christ. Amen.